The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Professor Charles Telfer. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. God and our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for grace to sinners. We thank you that you have mercy on those who call upon you through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you as we open your word, Lord, we don't see stories of moral improvement, stories that tell us how we can work our way to you. We thank you that we find a single story of how you come down to save wretched, broken sinners like us through Jesus Christ, the son of the woman. Our Lord, we pray that you'd encourage our faith, you'd bless us and build us up, grant us repentance, and strengthen our, 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 our laying hold of Christ and our rejoicing in him as our all in all. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please remain standing as we read God's word together from Genesis. Let's read God's word from Genesis 38. If our conference speaker has shown us in some ways the need of the contemporary church for reformation, surely we see here the need of the church in Judah's day for tremendous reformation. This is the story of God's church. Just after Judah has betrayed his own younger brother into slavery and almost certain death into Egypt, now it tells this story about Judah and Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. Hear the word of the Lord. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother." But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, 
He thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim on the road, at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila. And he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. And therefore his name was called Perez. And afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Please be seated. In this faculty series on the patriarchs and matriarchs, we get a kind of backwards encouragement from passages like the one we've just read. As we see the sins and inconsistencies of our forebears in the faith. If God elected and showed himself faithful to spiritual screw-ups, such as Judah, maybe there's hope for you, maybe there's hope for me. We've been considering in recent weeks Abraham's inconsistencies, his unbelief of God's promise that he would have a son, his lack of care for his own wife's honor. He seemed willing to allow his wife to be the object of other men's desires as long as he himself would not be killed. And in this chapter, we see a very long list of his great-grandson Judah's sins and evidences of his unbelief. There are so many sins here. We can sympathize with the authors of the Talmud who mourned the publication of the Septuagint. 
It says that on the day the Torah was translated into Greek, that day was as difficult, quote, for the Jewish people as for the day, as the day when the golden calf was made. All the shameful deeds of Judah were exposed to the watching world when this story came into the lingua franca of the day. Consider then with me these events, these sins, this unbelief of Judah, and the belief, the faith of our matriarch, Tamar. Dr. Baugh set the stage beautifully last week as he suggested that Sarah was acting in faith even as she gave Hagar to Abraham. And I'd like to suggest as well that this bold action of dressing like a prostitute and connecting herself with Judah was an act of faith, an act of forcing him to fulfill his duties to her and claiming her place as a matriarch in the Abrahamic line, this line that she knew God had promised to bless. And I, and I think we see from God's blessing on her sons that, that that expectation was indeed valid. But let's look at the beginning of our text and make a few observations as we go through. It says in verse 1 that Judah went down from his brothers. The magnetic power of sin is so strong that as soon as we turn away from the Lord, we plunge when left to ourselves. This is not simply a geographical descent, although it is that, of course. He's descending from where his family is in the highlands of Hebron down into the Shephelah, into the lowlands, those valleys that connect, those valleys that are so often the area of conflict between the believing community and the unbelieving communities down in Philistia. But this is a moral descent, clearly, as well. We have already seen the, the pitiless, unbelieving heart of Judah in giving his own uh, younger brother over to slavery and death, and his complete lack of concern for his own father in lying to him about Joseph's death. He takes a piece of Joseph's personal property something that will surely identify him, that coat, and he uses it to deceive his own father, and he puts his own father heartlessly into tremendous mourning. But how ironic it is, in God's strange, just providence, that it is precisely a piece of personal identifying property that brings the deceiver into deception. The language between 37.32 and 38.25, please identify whose these are, are very similar. Tamar deceives the deceiver and brings back on his own head his own deception. Old Testament scholars have suggested across the generations that chapter 38 is kind of haphazardly patched into this broader, uh, what's often called the Joseph narrative. But if we look at it very closely, we'll see there's all kinds of connections that tie our passage to what goes in front and what goes behind as well. Look, for example, or think, for example, what happens in the scene with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. 
There's quite a contrast between Judah, is there not, and Joseph on the same, in the same issue of, of uh, sexual seduction. Whereas Joseph resists and unwillingly leaves by, behind his identifying personal property, Judah walks right into it and gladly turns over his identifying personal property. Judah surely knew that his uncle Esau had deeply displeased grandfather Isaac when he married pagan women. He surely knew how displeasing it would be to his own father, Jacob. But look at verse 38, chapter 38, verse 2. It's, he doesn't care. It says there, he saw, he took, he went into this Canaanite woman. She's not even named. Judah's lusty behavior here is described in the same terms as, as the B'nai Elohim in Genesis 6, verse 2. These sons of God, these tyrant kings, as it were, who simply saw the woman they wanted and took them, harem fashion. Judah is not far from the behavior of his great-great-nephew, Samson, in the same area, just a couple valleys over, who looked and took with his roving eye and his inflamed libido. He's not far from our mother, Eve, who looked and took that object of her desire. If I can speak of a race at this early time, the race of Abraham is under great threat at this point. The Jews, if I can use that term, are in danger. We've already seen from chapter 34 the danger of genocide that they are in. Judah, excuse me, Simeon and Levi have engaged in genocide against other groups and now stand in danger of themselves being wiped out. That's one danger. But this 38 is another danger. And that is the danger of assimilation. We've seen, we've heard from our speaker this week that it is an oppressive thing when a dominant culture forces assimilation on a minority culture. But Judah feels no tension whatsoever. He doesn't resist. He runs. He, as the minority culture, he runs into assimilation. He's glad to behave like a Canaanite. His father traveled to the ends of the earth, as it were, to get a believing wife. And he gets one from whatever he sees amongst the Canaanites, not only for himself, but also for his son. He takes pagan women for his son as well. And we can see chapter 38 for later Israelite readers is a reminder of why God would bring them to Egypt to protect them, to keep them distinct from the world, one reason, so that they might not be assimilated as hundreds of cultures have been assimilated to other majority cultures throughout the history of the world from the beginning of human history. The list of Judah's sins plays out in the list of his son's sins and their perversity. His first son, whose name is Er, is the word Ra, spelled backwards. Ayin Resh. I don't think that's uh, unintentional. This Er is so wicked, like Sodom, he's notoriously wicked, and his death is, 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 is seen as a publicly notable judgment from God. And his brother shows his own unbelief and his own hard heart through his sexual behavior as well. Now, you've heard of leveret marriage. Levir, evidently, is Latin for a brother, a husband's brother. 
This is, uh, seems very strange to us, but it's an ancient Near Eastern custom to maintain some kind of social immortality for uh, a man who dies young to maintain uh, inheritance stability. But as we see from Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, as we see from the example in Ruth 5 through 8, it is possible to refuse this duty to the, uh, to the brother's wife. But Onan, like us, we want to give a good public presentation even though in our hearts we don't care. We don't care. He says one thing and he does another. He is too, he's too timid. He doesn't have the guts to refuse this responsibility. And so he goes along and he takes this woman as his wife, right? He fulfills his, the public expectation. But in private, he makes sure that he won't have to pay, which is he won't conceive a son who will take away from his own inheritance. And so in verse 9, this coitus interruptus that we read of is not only a shame on Onan, but a shame on his father, Judah. Now, of course, this is interesting kind of PG-rated Bible passage here. Uh, And some church traditions, of course, use this to argue that every ejaculation must have the potential of producing offspring. But this is to enter into the thorny question of raising ethical principles from narrative texts, which is always uh, questionable. And so rather than taking this text and jumping off into into a a discussion of modern uh, conception control, the sin of Onan is his failure first to his brother, then to the broader family, and then also to Tamar. Tamar had the right to expect not only sex, but the fruit of sex, that is, conception from her legal husband. This is the uh, assumption of Exodus 21.10, for example. Women have the right to expect children from their husbands, basically, at least at some point, as, and, and verse 9 makes it very explicit that Onan had no intention whatsoever of ever doing this. He's taking away virtually the life of his brother, the life of a future generation. He's taking away the expectation of a life for his wife, Tamar, and in return, his own life justly is taken away. Onan's sin, Ur's sin, Judah's sin. Judah's sin is shown in his lack of care. He doesn't even mourn his son's death as his father tremendously mourned his own son Joseph's death. Judah, Judah, is a stone. He's superstitious. He blames Tamar rather than his son, and he does the same thing to Tamar that his son did to Tamar. That is, he makes a promise on the outside that he has no intention of fulfilling on the inside. He said, okay, I will fulfill my family obligations to you. You have the right to be the matriarch of my eldest son's line. You have the right to be the mother of the heir of my house. He says that publicly, but yet what does he do? He's deceiving her. He sends her, he doesn't keep her in his house. He sends her back like a divorced woman, back to her father's house. And then when the time comes that Sheila can marry, Tamar is, as it says in verse 14, is not given to her. She's deceived. Judah falls into the temptation, that same temptation that all of us have, 
is to try to be righteous on the outside, but to give in to heartless lack of concern and self-service on the inside. And I don't need to spend a lot of time on the other sins that are so obvious in this chapter. His lust in verse 14 as he propositions a prostitute. His foolishness in 17 and 18 is like someone giving their stack of credit cards to uh, the madam in a whorehouse. His double standards, his irresponsibility, his murderous thoughts. If you look at verse 24, he calls for Tamar to be burned. Who cares about the child she's carrying? This is seemingly worse treatment that's probably common in that particular context. These are terrible sins. But God, in his just providence, causes what goes around to come around. And Judah, who doesn't, as he says in verse 23, want to be made a laughingstock, is made precisely a laughingstock. At the end of all these years of sin, Judah the fool is made to look bad, and his, foolishly is, his foolishness is publicly exposed. But I want you to look at 26, which I consider to be the key verse here. 26, the key verse for interpretation and for application. What does he say? He admits that he sinned. He turns. This is his conversion, it seems to me. May God give to each of us this kind of grace. He recognizes that Tamar had a proper claim on him. Now, Alders, the Dutch commentator, thinks that there was a social expectation at the time that the father of a wife's dead husband was expected to fulfill the leveret demands and to provide uh, the son as well. Be that the case, yea or nay, he recognizes that she had a claim on him that he did not fulfill. And so Judah gives us the proper interpretation of Tamar's behavior in verse 26. She is righteous. I'm not righteous. She is righteous. Tamar is like Ruth. Tamar is the one who said, your God will be my God. The pagan woman who identified herself at great cost with the people of God. Tamar is like Rahab who was willing to deceive her own people in order to connect herself with the chosen seed. Tamar has heard, it seems, the gospel and has believed, even though Judah, it seems, has not believed the gospel. Tamar is one of these women, it seems to me, who are, as it were, saved through childbearing, as the reference in the New Testament says, who were given the power to conceive, as the New Testament suggests in Hebrews. Tamar knows that Judah is the son of Abraham to whom these, these, these promises have been made. She knows that it's through this family that a blessing will come to all the nations. She has been offered the position of matriarch to Judah's line, to be the, the wife and the child bearer of the son of Judah. And now when push comes to shove, she absolutely refuses to give that up and it would have been so easy. It would have been so easy. Brothers and sisters, you and I will be tempted as we suffer at the hands of Christians. Perhaps you've been tempted already deeply in the past. As we suffer in the churches, as we suffer in the service of the churches, to just say, I've had enough. I'm just going to go back to the world. She's in her father's house. She could easily have gone back to her Canaanite culture. How easy it would have been to marry somebody else. She says, no. 
I want to be connected with the people of God no matter what, and I will risk my reputation to keep this connection with the chosen people. And she, no matter how strange we might find this action, even as we find Ruth's actions rather strange, even as we find Rahab's background rather strange, she triumphs and she becomes, through Perez, her son, the mother of the Messiah himself, as we read in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. And God blesses her conception. This birth of twins is a special event. And what's the point being made about these twins? As you look at the broader story of of, of Genesis, the story is that God's blessing is on Judah. Not only is his father blessed, the father of Judah, in the younger, triumphing older over the older Esau, but now in his in his in his uh, his children as well, we see God doing an extraordinary thing through the as it were the second born triumphing over the first. This I know that. Uh, maternity wards can be rather chaotic places, but this one takes the cake with one kind of shoving out his fist and then the other nudging him out in order to be born first and take the, take the prize. But that's exactly the point. It is Perez in God's providence that's the, that's the line of the Savior. What a glorious thing it is. It is Perez who receives the blessing. It is Perez who shows that God is going to bless Judah and make him the father of the Messiah. This man, this slave trader, this fornicator, yes. God shows grace to him. God shows grace through him even as he sees, even as he recognizes she is more righteous than I. This is the time of the transition and the conversion of Joseph. I wish I had more time. Our time is out. This is the Joseph who is now a new man. This is the Joseph who is willing to go and say to his father in 20 and 43, 8 and 9, send the boy with me. I will be a pledge of his safety. Let me bear the blame. This is the Judah who goes to Egypt and says in this beautiful speech to his brother Joseph in in chapter 44, he says, let me remain instead of the boy. Let me be a servant and let the boy go back with his brothers. He's willing to become a slave himself out of concern for his father, for whom he had no concern before. He becomes the true father of our Lord Jesus Christ, his own son. He becomes a type and a picture. This wicked, wicked, hard-hearted man becomes such a picture of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. May the Lord give us the faith of Tamar and may we value our connection with God and with his people more than anything else on earth. And may God give us the repentance of Judah. May God work in us a transformation that we might be little examples, little Christs, even as our name Christian means, transform people who picture the Savior who puts us right with God. Would you stand with me briefly for prayer? Our Lord, Father, we thank you for the one who sacrificed himself that we might be made secure forever. We pray that you continue to work in us, transform us, and be patient with us. Grant us strength for all that we face. Thank you for grace to sinners as we see so clearly displayed in this text. In Jesus' name we bless you. Amen. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California.
all rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.